Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Why is the Prime Minister finally getting Canada's act together when it comes to NATO contributions? Well, Tasha Curitan, Principal at Navigator and author of The Right Path, will join us and talk about that. Canada's premiers are disappointed in the federal government for moving too slowly to fight crime with bail reform, so what's taking them so long? And Pierre Polyev has changed his look. Will Canadians respond to the makeover? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's uh, going on in Europe right now. The uh, NATO meeting uh, is wrapping up. And, uh, well, uh, you know, when you start evaluating exactly what was said as opposed to what was actually done, uh, you're getting mixed reactions on this uh, from the Canadian commitments that the Prime Minister made uh, to the NATO commitments to Ukraine that initially uh, got a a pretty harsh reaction from uh, President Zelensky. Uh, but uh, the Prime Minister uh, says that Canada unequivocally supports Ukraine's membership in the NATO, once again repeating that it will happen, quote, when conditions allow. Here's what the PM had to say. A clear path forward uh, by NATO and a recognition that Ukraine belongs in NATO. There is uh, much work to do over the coming years to see this war end successfully uh, for Ukraine uh, and have them come join us fully as part of NATO. And by the way, the United States and and even the NATO secretary made comments very similar to this as well. Uh, Our next guest has got some uh, strong opinions, as she does on on, on things political, and uh, so, which is always a a pleasure to have her on the program. She is, of course, Tasha Kiridan, who is a principal and navigator and author of The Right Path. Uh, Tasha, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Great to be here. Listen, you talked a little bit about Canada's defense commitment. I want to get to that in a second. But first and foremost, let me swing back to what the Prime Minister is talking about here. Uh, Canada will allow, or the or NATO will allow uh, Ukraine in there when the time is right. I, I don't know if you saw the headline in the New York Times uh, yesterday that said NATO will allow Ukraine in someday, uh, yeah. which is hardly a commitment. Uh, I mean, what, what was your read on what was said and and, and the message that, uh, that that Biden and Trudeau and everyone else was giving Ukraine? Well, the issue with letting Ukraine in while it is at war with Russia is that this would then pull all NATO partners into the war. It's, you know, one for all, all for one. So if if they were admitted now and they understand that, um, you know, Kiev, uh, the official line there, they understand that they can't be admitted while they're in an active confrontation. But um, what Zelensky wanted was a time frame. And that's what's not there. So it's not, you know, uh, you know, so many years, months, uh, days after this conflict is finished, or that there's any kind of, of sense of, you know, of a horizon here. And I think that is the frustration, because you know, otherwise, it's it's pretty empty words saying, like, well, you know, when we think it's okay, we'll let you in. <laughs> well, does that mean when the war's over? Or does that mean, you know, five years later? Or what? Because the idea is that the minute they're in, it will dissuade Russia from any future hostility. So they want to get in as soon as possible. But isn't the other side of that coin then that Putin can take that and say, well, we're not going anywhere. Uh, the long, as long as we have boots on the ground in there, they're not going to do anything. That's true. But I mean, Putin also has to consider um, what's going to happen with him domestically. We already saw the uh, failed attempt to uh, march on Moscow. We've seen there's a lot of unrest happening within the country. Um, for great frustration that this war is dragged on as long as it has. No one expected this, certainly not the Russians. And the higher their losses and body count goes, the less support Putin's going to have. So he has to weigh all that as well. Uh, I don't think that he wants an endless conflict there either. So it's going to be interesting to see just how that plays out. And, and 
you know, is this going to be a negotiated piece? Uh, is is there going to be a military action that's going to turn the war? I, it's it's pretty unclear exactly which direction we're going now, isn't it? Um, it is unclear, and a lot depends on not only what happens in terms of the hostilities, but what happens, as you said, behind the scenes. Um, you know, there are other players watching this. China's watching this. Um, you know, the United States, of course, is watching this. But other actors who want to see what happens with Putin and how weakened he gets here, because, um, you know, in Europe also, obviously, because of their energy resources is very concerned. So I think that at some point, depending what happens there geopolitically for other countries, pressure may be put, like you said, will it be a negotiated peace? Ukraine doesn't want to give anything up. This is the issue, right? So if you negotiate, clearly, it's usually that somebody, you know, you give and you get. So if, if Ukraine's not going to give any territory, then it, it can't expect to get a negotiated peace. Very quickly, and then we'll move back to the Canadian military situation here. Uh, as these guys uh, part ways and head back to their respective countries, is NATO stronger than ever or is it fractured? Because I'm, I'm hearing a lot of opinions on both sides of that. Well, I think that the need for NATO, the understanding that we need to have, um, you know, countries that uphold the rule of law and democracy uh, together on one side of the equation is greater than ever. But yes, there are fractures. Um, you know, they healed some of them. They healed the fracture over Sweden um, with Turkey. That was a very serious obstacle in the last year. But it's clear that, you know, people within NATO have their own their own views on the conflict um, and, and many conflicts and relations as well with other countries. And we've seen, you know, France is a bit of an outlier um, on relations uh, with China, for example, and that caused a lot of alarm among among its uh, its colleagues because we know that the ultimate threat um, and polarity with with NATO is not necessarily going to be Russia, but it may well end up being China. Well, and as you said in the uh, the piece in the National Post, uh, NATO is not perfect, but it's 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 really all we've got at this stage, so we're going to have to make it right. work, aren't we? Right. That's pretty much, I think, where where people are at. That you know you need to have this because otherwise. Um, you know, it's it's going to be a much a much more difficult task to stand up to authoritarianism. And that's the real issue is authoritarianism. It's 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 got many colors and many cloaks, um, but it's the same. It's the same issue. It's it's an issue between democratic regimes and authoritarian regimes and who will prevail. All right. Let's, let's swing back to what the prime minister said about military commitment. And, and I think, as you mentioned in the piece, uh, he seemed to be almost uh, being, being proactive about this because the day before the conference even started, uh, he talked about a new commitment to training. As, as a matter of fact, some of the Ukraine uh, cadets, I guess, are going to be trained here in Canada uh, as if well, this is going to be part of our contribution. Uh, now, you juxtapose that with the criticism that uh, that. Canada has received uh, from the, the UN Secretary General, from a number, including President Biden, a number of other leaders uh, that said that Canada's got to step up, that what they're doing is wonderful, but it's not enough. Uh, what, what's, what's your read as they finish this? Uh, are, have they recommitted to that? Are they getting frustrated with Canada? What's going on there? Well, I think Canada was a bit taken to the woodshed by a number of people, as you mentioned. Um, you know, uh, General Jens Stoltenberg said back in May that NATO's got ever, all the countries have to meet their 2% target. And this was after Trudeau had privately told allies that we weren't going to do it. So, um, you know, the, the signal has been sent, not just to Canada, but other countries too. But Canada specifically, even the French ambassador dressed us down not long ago, saying that we were ignoring our history and our previous commitments. Um, and we better step up. So the message has been sent. And yes, we are going to be committing more troops um, to the Latvian situation. But what it shows is the fact that it's going to take us three years to do this 
it's an indictment of the Canadian military as a whole. I mean, we are right now, we have a 10,000 troop shortage. Um, so it's extremely difficult for us to meet commitments in any part of the world. And when we do meet one, we have to basically scale back the others. So the real message here, the real takeaway is that Canada's military has just been falling down, um, not just with this government, previous ones as well, but this one in particular is, is really not made it a priority. And they have to do that because otherwise this criticism will continue and we'll have less weight in other arenas, including trade. And, and I mean, when you do the track record there, I know that that letter that uh, was uh, received by the government, of course, uh, criticizing them uh, by Canadians, a couple of former generals on uh, Rick Hillier, I think, was a signatory to that. Uh, but so were Jason Kennedy and Peter McKay, uh, both defense ministers, uh, both of whom, by the way, oversaw cuts to military while they were in charge. So we, we have been laggard in this, but the world's a different place than it was even 10 years ago, isn't it? It is. And this is what, you know, many people didn't see coming. And Canada has, we've always had the luxury of being under the U.S. umbrella um, and depending on them for defense. And there's no, you know, we haven't seen any domestic attacks. We, unlike Europe, we have that luxury too. Um, we don't have a land border with a hostile nation, but we do have the Arctic. And the Arctic, um, thanks to global warming, is getting less and less um, um, impacted by ice. We have all sorts of interest in minerals and other resources that are there by countries like Russia, like China and the United States. So Canada, is, you know, that's going to become an issue. Um, and the world is a different place because of the rise of China in particular. Um, so we've got to contend with that. We can't just sit on our laurels and say, oh, well, no one's going to ever come here. No one's going to ever come onto our territory and take our stuff because they may well do that. Well, there's an argument to be made that's already happening, isn't it? I mean, you know, China has a presence in the Arctic. Uh, Russia has a presence there, yeah. uh, as do other nations. They're, they're not just threatening them. They're already there, uh, you know, poking holes in the ground and looking around to see what's there. Uh, so at some point, we're going to have to exert this. But this, as, as you mentioned in the piece of the Post, though, there's a greater responsibility here uh, when you're talking about NATO and, and the world scenario here. Uh, and it's not just, you know, defending your border. It's it's defending democracy, uh, which is what's going on in Ukraine right now. Uh, we know that the Canadian military, uh, at the request of President Biden, should have had, or probably could have had, uh, some sort of a presence in Haiti. They they declined simply because they don't have the, the the staffing to be able to do that sort of thing. And and as you mentioned, it really comes down to numbers, don't we? We just don't have enough. It's not a matter of boots on the ground. We don't have enough people to fill the boots. Yeah, we don't have enough people. And this is this, like I said, um, we have a deficit of, of personnel because in part, um, the military is not seen as a priority. It has not received the equipment. It has not received the training. It's not, you know, um, in, in Latvia, uh, troops were complaining. Troops were saying they had to buy their own helmets. Like we didn't even provide, we're not even providing the right equipment to our people. So why would you join the military? This is the issue. If you want to have a strong military, you need to make it attractive as a career prospect, as an option for people, and also increase the sense of national pride. I mean, Canada, you know, uh, I don't know if you saw Justin Trudeau's Canada Day message, um, but it is pretty insipid. Um, you know, we are we are a proud nation. We have a proud history and we are constantly apologizing for it. And yes, we've done things wrong, as many nations have. But at this moment in history, um, we have to remember also we've done right. And that's what attracts people. You're not going to have patriotism if you constantly denigrate your country. So we've got to find a better, better path forward on that. He's got to find one or else people aren't going to want to join our armed forces. Is there a stronger 
a push right now towards Canada uh, from NATO and from other countries. I mean, you know, I, I go back to the to the German Chancellor just after he took office. Of course, was over here looking for liquid natural gas, and the answer basically was no. Uh, Japanese Prime Minister, same sort of situation. Uh, we've got resources here, and uh, you know, the, especially we look at the Ring of Fire and some of the other things that are going to be going on. Uh, I get the sense there's a lot of pressure on Canada right now, not just militarily, but otherwise, to, to step up and, and be a leader here because we've got an awful lot of stuff that people want here. We do. And that is that is an issue. I mean, the irony is the United States is just ramping up its exports of natural gas to Europe. Um, we could have been in on that market. We're not. Uh, we also have many critical minerals. The Ring of Fire and other places in Canada are rich with those deposits. Um, we know, uh, you know, China's already restricting the sale of two, the export of two critical minerals from that country, right? So there's already efforts that are made on the trades in the trade space to restrict the ability of other countries to not only, you know, make their cell phones, but make weapons, make, um, you know, these, these components are used in all sorts of military equipment and installation and to weaken other nations and their ability to fight a technological war that is really, that's the next frontier is the fact that, you know, cyber warfare is happening. And that's where a lot of, of, um, of issues will come up in terms of, of attacking other nations. They're not going to necessarily send in the troops. They'll send in, um, you know, the bots and the viruses and other things and the ransomware. So we've got to be prepared for that. And we're not. And other countries look at us as a weak spot. And so we have to beef those things up. And yes, um, United States has already said it's going to assist other countries in getting those minerals out of the ground in particular. Um, they have a program to do that. It's been a couple of years now. And Canada is part of that. And we're seeing already synergies there in terms of, of uh, financing companies and getting the capital here so that we can get those projects going. Uh, Tasha Kiridan, of course, principal and navigator and author of uh, The Right Path. Now, I know for our listeners, if they're concerned that, hey, I love reading Tasha's stuff, but, uh, you know, with what Google and Facebook are doing, am I going to have access to it? Yes, you are. Uh, you got your sub stack up and running right now, and it's called In My Opinion. Uh, I subscribed to it uh, the other day. It's a, it's a great read. Uh, and, and it's, it's I guess, the next natural step like this to kind of get the word out there. It must be uh, a, a great responsibility, but at the same time, it, it's the way journalism is moving. And we need to keep the messaging out there and the exchange of opinions and ideas out there, don't we? We do. And thank you for that, Clegg. Yes, I have a Substack, Tasha Caird, and I also have a website, TashaCaird.com, where I reproduce my National Post articles. And in, I also translate them into French because I believe that, you know, some of my audience is in Quebec and they don't necessarily want to read the English one, they, don't, they won't get the full the full grasp of it. They prefer to read it in French. So I have that too, because I think getting information out, like you said, is critically important. So we need to use all the channels we can. Well, you can check it out. Uh, just, uh, well, Google it before they stop. Anyway, it's called In My Opinion. <laughs> and uh, there's, some, there's some great stuff there. Get it while you can. Get it while they're hot. Tasha, thanks as always for this. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you so much, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, premiers, first ministers, uh, are meeting in Winnipeg over the last couple of days, and and as I said, rather cynically, I mean, you know, the, the consensus was everything that's wrong with the provinces now is the fault of the federal government. Uh, but that, there are some legitimate concerns uh, that were raised, and and one of them uh, in the, uh, the the genre of, of law and order, and there have been some some rather prominent stories about that, and and what some would suggest uh, areas that could be tightened up uh, at the uh, the meeting the other day, uh, bail reform came up and, and became a top priority for the premiers. Manitoba Premier Heather Stephenson uh, is the chair of the Council of the Federation, says reform is needed to address violence and crime. 
the federal government cannot further delay necessary bail reform. People in every province and territory should not have to wait any longer. So what happens and, and exactly what's that supposed to look like? Well, they weren't very specific about that. Uh, and it is something that gets bandied about because we've had some situations where people have committed some heinous crimes uh, well out on bail. And uh, I, I guess the knee-jerk reaction to that is, well, you know, lock them up and, and, and you know, just if they're not in on the street, then these sorts of things won't happen. And I can understand that mindset. But is it really practical? Uh, our next guest can shed some light on that. He is Michael Kempa. Michael is an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Michael, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Bill. These some of the premiers are taking a rather simplistic approach to this. Now, I, I don't think anybody is is going to sit here and say no. The bail uh, system here is just perfect. Just leave it alone. Uh, it always, I think, has to be something that has to be reevaluated re and tweaked from time to time. But is there a, a straight line to be drawn from, okay, tougher bail means less crime? Well, that would be too simplistic. Uh, there is no doubt. Our bail system in Canada is completely broken. Um, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association put it well where they say it's basically an international embarrassment. And what they mean by that is that we've already tried being tough with bail. We've quadrupled the number of people that we hold on remand. In other words, deny bail to since the 1980s. In fact, there are far more people being held in provincial prisons who are awaiting trial than those who have been convicted. And yet, we still see the types of crime and violent crime concerns that the premiers are talking about. We haven't achieved any success by being tough on bail for several decades. I mean, to, to follow up on what you just said, though, Michael, it sounds to me as if uh, part of bail reform uh, is, is expedite the judicial process. And we, we don't have enough judges. We're not listening to enough cases. Uh, people are, are sitting there. And in, as we know, uh, because it makes headlines when it happens, in some cases, uh, you know, charges are dismissed after a period of time uh, because they're entitled to, to a, you know, a, a speedy trial. And it's just not happening here. Well, that's absolutely the case. You've got to think about it in terms of it being a criminal justice system. So, of course, the system has many parts and bail is only one part of that system. So you can do whatever you like with bail. You can make it stricter. You could try to focus it on only holding certain forms of the riskiest and most violent offenders. But if you don't fix the rest of the system and speed up the availability of trial, and in fact, make sure that only the right cases are making their way to trial. Um, far too many very minor cases that could be resolved in the hallways through plea negotiations still end up in court or indeed could be dealt with uh, before even getting to the court stage uh, by the police working in the community. So you've got to recalibrate the system. This is certainly not an argument for being more lenient. It's an argument for making sure that that system has the resources and capacity to deal with the most serious cases that I believe still have to make their way through the formal criminal process as quickly as possible to help to ensure public safety. Maybe it, just step back a bit, because I, I, again, I, I'm just anecdotally relating some of the stuff we've heard from listeners as we've had the discussion over the last number of years. This is not a new issue, of course. Uh, we are entitled to bail. I mean, some people just say, well, maybe we don't have to have bail at all. I mean, we at some point, I guess, have to bring the Charter of Rights and Freedoms into this, into this discussion, don't we? Well, that's, of course, we have a charter guaranteed right of the presumption of innocence, which obviously means that you will not be held 
uh, in jail unless you've been convicted, not just accused, but convicted of a crime. Now, we all know that Section 1 of the Charter says all of our rights hold unless sometimes it might be necessary to violate those rights in a way that serves the public interest and which is reasonable in a democratic society. So we might say, okay, well, maybe certain very dangerous people accused of very dangerous crimes, specific crimes, where there's been multiple accusations over time and perhaps convictions in the past involving uh, weapons in the course of assault, certain forms of domestic violence, maybe there that's where we should be talking about the reverse onus where people have to show us that they deserve bail. The way the courts are going to read it is they tolerate violations of our charter rights, either if the violations are very minor and apply to everybody, just like you have to give a breathalyzer test in a random sobriety check at the side of the road. That is a violation of your charter rights, but the courts say it's a minor violation that applies to everybody and produces a lot of benefit. Or if it's a major violation, it has to be very focused. So if we're going to start talking about the major violation of a charter right for reverse onus, where you have to basically prove why you deserve bail before you've ever been convicted of anything, you're only going to be able to include a very small number of very serious crimes on your list, or the courts will just overturn it. You mentioned earlier that uh, previous governments have tried the quote-unquote tough-on-crime uh, legislation. Uh, some of them, of course, are buried in omnibus bills and they did pass into law. Uh, an awful lot of them, by the way, have been struck down by the Supreme Court eventually through challenges. Uh, and and then, you know, we ended into the guise of mandatory sentencing and things like that. Uh, and I know that you can't have a one-size-fits-all for a lot of these things, Michael, but when you talk about things like mandatory sentencing, uh, which basically, as you say, pretty much takes the idea of of of, of, of the settlements, you know, and of negotiated settlements between the two sides off the table, if it's going to be a mandatory sentence like that, does that help or hurt the system? Generally, it hurts the system. And we know that that's just not sort of the kind of lefty professor's opinion. When we look at the jurisdictions that have been very conservative, Texas, for example, where they had all manner of mandatory minimums through the early 2000s, they actually found it was a disaster for their public safety. And some of the most conservative politicians led the charge for undoing those mandatory minimums in Texas. In fact, they came up here to Canada at the time that we were starting to consider more mandatory minimums in the middle decades or the middle years of the 2010s to 2020s and told us not to do it. So if you don't have to listen to a lefty professor, Texas lawmen will tell you it's a terrible idea. Uh, and as you say, there's documentation that seemed to indicate that. Who leads the charge? Do we leave it up to the justice minister to, to say, okay, we're going to reform the system? I mean, that sounds like it's going to be a rather arduous process. Uh, what, what's step one? So the premiers of the provinces are agitating for the federal government to make good on passing the bill that they introduced, C-48, back in May, toughening uh, bail conditions uh, and increasing the reverse onus clause for certain major forms of crime, assaults with weapons and certain forms of domestic violence. So that's now going to have second reading through the fall. Second reading is where everybody debates it, yells back and forth, and hopefully people will start bringing evidence to bear on which of the clauses are a good idea. And people really need, Canadians need to pay attention to that debate. Because I think we've reached the point where people have caught on. It's not an argument about 
well, you're either hard on crime or soft on crime, and being hard on crime means making a bunch of legislative changes. We've come to understand that, yes, legislative reform and being tough is one component of a strategy for dealing with crime. But you've got to implement it with broader just systems reform to the criminal justice system where the right cases go to trial. Easygoing minor cases can be completely diverted out of the system, not because we're a bunch of bleeding hearts, but because we want to make sure that there's room in the system for the cases that really need to be there. And we go backwards and design our system uh, to be much more effective. Uh, it's, it's interesting. In, in one piece of legislation, I get the sense from the comments from some of the premiers uh, that that's, a, as they called a, one of them anyway, a good first step. I mean, it's not going to fix all of that legislation that you've just outlined, uh, but it, it does seem to put us down the right path towards talking about what else can be done here. Well, it is. Uh, some of the most sensible comments I've seen coming out of the north of Canada, I mean, none of it, there's a gig an enormous problem with domestic violence there. Their premier has said this bill is one very helpful tool to help to address a crisis in domestic violence. But he also says on its own, it won't resolve the problem. You've got to put in place the programs to deal with the more minor cases before they become major cases, because then there will simply be too many major cases to deal with through this legislative reform. I look forward to that discussion going forward. Listen, while I've got you, there was another story that came up and I wanted to get your perspective on if we could. Uh, and, and that has to do with, uh, well, uh, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, uh, who's been under a lot of heat for a lot of reasons, of course, over the last couple of months. Uh, but one in particular uh, was uh, his call for the RCMP to ban what is called the neck restraint. Uh, simply said it's it's inhumane, people can die from this. And, and apparently a, a panel of experts have said, Mr. Minister, you're wrong. Uh, now, and again, the, the picture in the people's minds that's going to get conjured up here, I guess, Michael, is 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 going to be George Floyd and the and the horrific accident that happened. Well, it wasn't an accident; it was a murder. Uh, people have already been charged with this uh, it, back in uh, 2020. And 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 as to whether or not this should be used, and that certainly sparked the debate too. Police officers are saying that this needs to be a necessary tool if it's done properly. I know it sounds like a rather bizarre dis debate to be having right now, uh, but what's your read on what you've seen of this? So what we've got is the new management advisory body, the MAB, for the RCMP, which is a little bit of a civilian oversight body at last for the RCMP. It's been recommended for about 30 years. They finally got one that's getting up and running. Uh, very similar to what police services boards and police commissions do for independent municipal police services across Canada, that has looked into the issue and made evidence-based recommendations for the RCMP on very limited use of one of the most minor forms of neck restraints, not a chokehold, a neck restraint that can only be used in certain types of cases by certain officers who have the training to use it. Now, the reason I say at last is it couldn't be the decision of either the commissioner of the RCMP or one minister as to what the policy on that particular technique should be. It should be a civilian oversight body that looks into the issue, looks at the evidence, and makes the policy that the RCMP then basically has to follow with the minister signing off on it. This is the way that the RCMP should generally be managed, and in fact is the entire person a reason for that management advisory body, the MAB. So all eyes on the MAB for the next year. Let's see what else they do to start helping the RCMP 
leave it away a little bit from government uh, involvement and government influence and improve their upper levels of management. To that point, then, what are they suggesting here, that there should be an, an evaluation after each time uh, that uh, well, the carotid control technique is actually the official name for, I guess, what we're talking about here. Uh, and uh, it, you're right, it doesn't get used a whole lot of time. The RCMP used it uh, 25 times in 2020, 14 times the following year, and 14 times the year after that. But do they investigate each each incident as they do if a firearm is, is used? So to now, no, but the MAB is recommending that that absolutely be the case. And they're also saying, because we say that the carotid technique can be used, it's not open season on putting all manner of suspects and people who are involved in minor altercations, breaking up fights into carotid artery holds. They have said, only in circumstances where it's a very dangerous situation, where even more serious forms of physical force might have to be used, such as the drawing of tasers or firearms, it would be preferable, if possible, to start with the carotid hold. So it's it's simply not saying now we're going to have widespread neck holds used by the RCMP. It's where something more serious might have to be used. Consider that carotid hold if it could work and only by certain officers who have the training to do it. And then, yes, it has to be looked into after. Was this actually necessary? So this isn't part of ordinary training. I mean, if, if you know, for municipal services or whatever the case might be, I mean, they don't they don't go through this process uh, on, a, on a daily basis with the expectation, I guess, that they're probably never going to want to use it or have to use it. Correct. It would go for certain squads or divisions of the RCMP. They would find themselves in the types of, um, for example, domestic uh, violence investigations and certain instances of public control, uh, public order policing that would receive that training. Uh, it's an interesting discussion and debate, and, and certainly uh, every now and then, of course, uh, when we get policing issues like this, they uh, get a little muddled from time to time when politicians get involved in, in, in the policy making. Uh, so glad you had some time to talk to us about this and clarify the issue. Michael, thanks for this today. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Michael Kempa, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about makeovers. Uh, I, I'm talking about political uh, uh, leaders with makeovers, okay? Uh, and I, I know it, it's a thing these days, right? And, and you know, let's face it, appearances are everything. And public perception is everything. And uh, to suggest that uh, the, uh, the leader of the uh, progressive or the conservative party, rather federally, Pierre Polyev, uh, is having a bit of an image problem these days, I think would be a, a bit of an understatement. He's been on the job less than a year and uh, taken an awful lot of criticism from an awful lot of circles. Um, and uh, suggesting that maybe Canadians just can't seem to warm up to to a guy like that. Is it his appearance? Is it the way he talks? I mean, there's there's a whole number of questions, I guess, you could go down. So when when the, the, the popular perception seems to be that this guy's not the sort of guy that we really could warm up to, what do you do? Well, you change the look, right? Uh, and there have been a number of things written about this over the last little while, about the new Polyev look. Uh, he seems to have ditched the glasses, uh, for the most part, he seems to have ditched the tie, uh, and it's a different approach. Uh, the other day, I saw he's got a T-shirt on at the Calgary Stampede, and he got the sunglasses hanging through the you know the the collar on the T-shirt. Uh, you didn't see that from this guy a year ago. So I want to 
get into just what works with these and and and, and about likability with public officials and how that can be changed possibly with the change of appearance. And who better to talk about that uh, than our next guest? Joanne McNeish is an Associate Professor of Marketing at Toronto Metropolitan University and always a, a, a welcome guest on this program. Joanne, great to have you back with us today. Hey, thanks, Bill. I really appreciate it. And since both of us wear glasses, I think this is such a good topic to uh, to to investigate. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Polly, I was ditched them. I mean, I'm going the other way yeah. here, Joanne. I, mean, <laughs> I don't I don't know if this is the right way or not. But is there something? Let's start with that, okay? About yeah. about changing somebody's appearance, and and glasses certainly do change the appearance. But there was a time, uh, not that many years ago, when a lot of celebrities. We're, we're starting to use glasses, even if they didn't need them uh, for vision. I mean, there'd be clear glass in those. Uh, Stallone and a whole bunch of other actors at the time thought, you know what? I look pretty cool in glasses. Uh, some people just don't get the look, though. They, they can't carry it off, I guess. Ah, Bill, you are so amazing. That is exactly right. Uh -huh. That was a real millennial trend to yeah. put on glasses when you didn't need them. But, but let's go back to where you started, because that's okay. really key. The research is absolutely clear that facial cues in particular are linked to political and election success. So there's been study after study for as long as there's been polling and elections and those pretty well go together. So that's absolutely consistent. We're actually quite far from the election. So I think his team said to him, let's play around with a number of visual cues since we know that's really important in success and right now we're not being successful so let's play with the physical cues and do you not get the sense that he looked at trudeau and said okay what does trudeau do how does he make the look and the first thing they of course noticed is glasses so setting aside that sort of funny wearing glasses when you didn't need it trend Glasses actually, politicians rarely wear glasses. In the 100 year history, there's only a few politicians that wore glasses because they used to be associated with weakness, old age, defici deficiency. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's sort of fascinating is that politicians, if you look in the past, actually didn't have a consistent look. That, that, that image was important, facial look, but it was a look that we recognized. We looked for competence. So I checked to see, is electro, electrical success still linked to competence? It is, but what the author said was, it's the appearance of competence. And now we look for different kinds of signals of what a competent person should look like. So I think taking off the glasses actually is a mistake. But I think they're looking, they, they also changed, as you pointed out, the style of dress. And that sort of signal makes them seem less, less conservative. And why that's important is I think you and I would say, unless he goes and gets back the more liberal conservative voter from the liberals, he can't win the next election. So his conservative base will stay with him, so his hardcore voter. But he's looking to get the people in the middle, the people that are angry with Trudeau, but have no place to go. So they're trying to soften his image. And what I always love about big companies, think about the Coke Pepsi challenge. Coke mm. is or Pepsi is generally the number two brand. And they spent decades doing comparative advertising in order to make people link the number one brand Coke 
with number two being Pepsi, and it was actually very successful for them. So I think the team said, let's go try a number of things visually that Trudeau does to see if we can soften that image and begin to attract the swing voter, what I call the conservative liberal voter. There used to be something called a social conservative, and they weren't the conservative, that, that hardcore conservative that we see today. So I think it's a really good time to try these things. I think what you and I will be able to talk about over the next couple of months is various types of looks, because you pointed out, so it's a more relaxed look. He's taken off the tie. Now he did a black t-shirt with a jacket. Now he's taken off the jacket and done this white t-shirt. And all of that is is just, and it's for him, because if I look back at a number of pictures, he's always been a suit and tie and glasses kind of guy. Oh, yeah. So yeah. this is quite dramatically different. Um, but but good, I think, uh, a strong campaign team. They, they've literally looked at the literature, said visual image is important. We need to change his look. We're experimenting at the right time. There's not look likely not going to be an election right away. Um, and and as I said, I think what will be fun to see is what they do and what they put back. But if I if they were asking me, I'd say put the glasses back. Glasses are okay today. They're much more strongly linked to competence. And if we think of the te tech nerd look, uh, glasses are very cool. And if we think of millennials who did this, I don't need glasses, but I'm wearing glasses because it looks fun. Um, that would be a base that they definitely want to aim for. So I, I, I might actually put back the, maybe a different set of glasses. His glasses uh, tended it, to look different, like old school. Oh, you just reacted. It did. It did. And and yeah. I'm I'm thinking of other examples of this. And and it, you know where glasses are cool, and they are honestly, Joanne, they are cool. Uh, but but <laughs> you look at a guy like Ryan Reynolds, who's one of the the biggest stars mm -hmm. in the world these days, right? I mean, this guy just he can't help but make money on every movie he's doing, and. Uh, he's just and he's just a wonderful guy, you know. Just everybody loves this guy, uh, and clearly he needs glasses because every time you see him when he's not working in a movie, he's got glasses on. Now I assume he's wearing contacts when he's you know making you know Deadpool and things like this, but but he rocks it. it they, they look good on him, um, and and he just looks so he, he looks cool and everything. But some guys have it and some don't. And even Paul Pauliev, I mean, they were all at the uh, the Calgary Stampede, of course, over the last little while. And there he was in his black T-shirt and looked like a baseball cap or something, and sunglasses. And, and rule one when you're in politics is you never wear sunglasses because you always want people to see your face. But sunglasses are cool. So he's got. Now, mind you, we stood beside a guy who was a, a, a with a homophobic T-shirt, unfortunately. But that's Paul. Oh. I guess he, you can't get rid of all of the stuff in one year. But but it was the look. And, and, you know, I can see there's a concerted effort now to try to change this. And, and this has happened. Uh, you know, some of our uh, political fans would remember David Peterson was an MPP in Ontario here for, <clears throat> in the mid-1990s. He's from London. He was a very smart guy. Everybody liked him. Uh, and he became leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. But, of course, you know, that was back when the Conservatives ruled. And they did the makeover on him. They ditched the glasses. He lost probably 25 or 30 pounds. Uh, and he looked like a cool guy, and he got elected in the next election. I mean, it, 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 it's, there's a cause and effect here, isn't there? Absolutely, and, and it's particularly important in the last two decades. The 2000s uh, is all about imagery and visuals, so it's always been important. No question it's always been important, but, it, but now you're photographed endlessly. You can't escape. If you're outside your place of residence as a politician, you, get, you will be photographed. And so you have to have a look 
that's appealing to people and that looks cool. And what he's got to be careful with, though, is being authentic to who he yeah. is because mm -hmm. he looked so comfortable in those suit and uh, glasses. This is going to be a look that means he's got to acquire the attitude because you and I would both say when we look at a Ronald, uh, Ryan Reynolds guy, it's exactly what you said. He fits the part. And so when he wears glasses, they instantly acquire his at like his great positive attitude. Um, so they have to be careful about that. And, and then I was thinking of people like Doug Ford. Doug Ford, authenticity is the other piece of politics that's so important. If you change superficially, people will know you're being inauthentic, and that is not a strong characteristic in politics. Doug Ford has a look, um, and he's been consistent in his look. I, I think, I don't know if you and I talked about when he got his hair cut too short. Yeah. yeah. And I couldn't quite tell the difference, but the point was he um used it as an opportunity to talk about small businesses and the fact that oh well it'll grow out it's not a big deal so he uses his appearance authentically by making it's just not a big deal he'll laugh at jokes about himself he doesn't get concerned so what pierre needs and his team need to work on is pick the elements that are authentic to who he is but if he can't acquire the attitude because the thing that uh, pierre trudeau has is he does the rolled up sleeves very well if if you like that sort of thing um and the second piece is is he's got to link some policies to the change in image again if this is about attracting that liberal conservative or the swing voter then that group also wants to see some policy backup so you can't again so it's authenticity and competence oh i'll just do superficial things which is change the appearance of something but we've got real issues to deal with now. So we're also looking for a politician. And what he, I hope he won't copy from just from Trudeau is Trudeau's dealing in the superficial now. It's the image, it's the picture, uh, rather than the substance of things. And so Pierre might have an opportunity in, make the tweaks, because that's important, but then policy and approaches. The other thing we haven't talked about, he also softened his speaking style. And I yep. think that's important. Voters don't want to be yelled at or they don't want people to feel that someone's being dominating them. That we, we want to be collaborated with as voters now. When you're doing something so like this, Joanne, how important is, is, well, first of all, as you mentioned, I think we both use the word team here a number of times. Uh, yep. but, but authenticity is a big part of it too. But at the same time, uh, you've got to be coachable. In other words, uh, you've got to be able to adopt to this, you know, because you're right. I think most of us can spot a phony. I mean, you can put a t-shirt and a pair of jeans on somebody, uh, but if they sound insincere, they're not going to hold our attention for very long. So there's 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 no one size fits all, is there? I mean, you've got to know the individual, uh, what they can do, what they can get away with. But the other element to this too, and I wanted to get your read on this, uh, when somebody does change like this, you know, okay, ditch the tide, ditch whatever, does it change the person? Uh, do they have a different approach, a different attitude, a different mindset? So, so all the sort of self-help guru psychologists would tell us, yes, if we change a habit or an, an aspect of ourselves, in fact, it has an effect on us. And my gosh, what an interesting point, because I'm talking as if the team and Pierre uh, Polinev is, is interchangeable, but in fact, uh, in a sense, he has to agree to it 
adopt it and be it. And what, and so clearly he's willing to try. And actually, as a politician, that's a neat characteristic. If he's actually willing to change, that could be compelling. Um, so, and so obviously, and, and because, and, and one other point, he's been with the Conservative Party a long time. He, stir, he served with Stephen Harper successfully. So the team would know him well, would, seems to know how to approach him to encourage him to make these changes. And hopefully between them, they understand how does it read? How are people thinking about this? And I think the fact that people were talking about this is that important dialogue about should image matter so much? And, and again, it's the research is clear. Image absolutely and visual image matters tremendously in elections. But we want someone who's actually going to deliver on the promise uh, in way of policy and change, because we again back to big issues. It's that interesting. Well, actually, uh, Olivia Chow yesterday, who arrived at City Hall in a bicycle. Yeah. John Tory, Doug Ford couldn't have arrived at City Hall in a bicycle. We would have all no disrespect, but we would have laughed. We would have said that doesn't make any sense as a visual image. For her, it made tremendous sense, and so. I know people will want to write you and say, no, 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 I'm not influenced by visual. We're all, because it goes to our reptilian brain, the imagery. <laughs> so, it, it, which is, means it goes into our brain and our, um, uh, our reactions are instantaneous to it. So, um, I think that the fact he's trying different things and the fact they're trying new and different things at different occasions, now they just need to work on, oh, don't, Somebody please look at the photo and make sure he's not standing next to the wrong yeah. people and the wrong T-shirts. Because that's that's, that's yeah. going to be the next phase of it, I think. Uh, Pierre, watch, you, <laughs> you judge by who yes. you hang out with. Okay, you got that, bro. Okay, all right. I know you're a cool guy now, but you know the people are going to take that into consideration. Joe, and always great yep. to have a conversation with you and get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. Hey, thanks, Bill. Talk to you soon. You betcha. Joanne McNeish, uh, professor of marketing at uh, Toronto's Metropolitan University. And, and as we said, other politicians have gone through this. Bob Ray, uh, you know, wore the, the big wide glasses, uh, the teardrop glasses for the longest time. He ditched the glasses. Uh, the look can make a big, big difference, especially for elected officials. Uh, but we've seen it happen with other people, too. It's a kind of a transformational thing, isn't it? The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.